you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Earmark Podcast. I am your host, as always, Blake Oliver, CPA, joined today by Michael Lee. Hey, how you doing? Owner, founder of Reconciled. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me over, Blake. You can see we're in a slightly different uh, location. Well, if you're watching the YouTube version of this, you can see that we're in my backyard here in Scottsdale. It's very nice. It's very nice with your fake cactus here and everything. <laughs> That's right. A beautiful work of art uh, that I don't have to water, which is nice because you do have to water cacti uh, and they will die if yes. you don't. Yes, yes I've learned that. Uh, even I can kill a succulent. Uh, but yeah, thanks, Michael, for coming out and hanging out in my backyard for a change of pace. You are down in Tempe. Yes, yes, I've been down in Tempe, yeah. I was born and raised there. Born and raised in Tempe. Yeah. And your firm, however, is, well, you got some people here in Phoenix area. Yeah. Uh, but most of your firm is spread out. Yeah, I started it originally in Burlington, Vermont, and, and where my wife's from. And then now we have employees in... I think 15 states, something like that, and three countries, so. That's amazing. Yeah. How many employees? Uh, we have 55 employees right now. 55? Yeah. I feel like the last time you told me that number, it was in the 40s. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> and yeah. We, that was like months ago. Yeah, and if, it, if it's fluctuated up and down this year between 50 and 60, we haven't quite gotten past the 60 mark yet. And then if, if you count contractors, I guess technically we're at 70 wow. something, but we're, we, don't, we don't count them in our employee count. So that's amazing. So 55 employees, 15 states. And what kind of work does Reconciled do? Reconciled does uh, online accounting. So it's outsourced accounting primarily for small business. Uh, we focus on bookkeeping, payroll, financial statement creation, accounts receivable, accounts payable management, really anything you would have a in-house accounting team do for your small business. That's, that's our focus. Tax, do you do tax work? We do. We do tax. We started offering that about two years ago, and that was because of a few acquisitions that we had done. And uh, now we're in the tax game. I don't have that background, though, so I'm not really involved in that department, yeah. but I have a great team that, that, that does that. So. Yeah, you just bought, you see, you bought a tax firm, or yeah, well, you, we or bought, you built we, it internally. Yeah, we bought three firms uh, in the past two years as part of our growth strategy, and two of them ha um, had fairly large tax practices. Yeah. So that's what, that's what I'm excited to talk to you about uh, in particular is buying accounting firms. That is the title of this episode, how to buy an accounting firm. Okay, so, great. So Michael, <laughs> how do I buy an accounting firm? I wanna, well, and how do I do it successfully? I guess is really <laughs> the, go. right, that's the subtitle is, is uh, how to buy an accounting firm and have it work out. So how many acquisitions have you done? We've done three. Three. And have they all worked out? I would say on all of them, they have been all great lessons of how to buy an accounting firm. And with every single one that we've done, the most recent one we've done, we, we become more and more successful at it. So it really depends on what your definition of success is because we're still fairly new into it. We're only two years into it. And so the first firm we bought two years ago is now two years, we're two years in. The second firm we bought was earlier this year, so we're a year in. And the third, mm. fir third firm we bought was this past July, so we're only six months in. 
So it really depends on how do you want to measure it and define it. But overall, it's been a good experience and, and we want to continue doing so. Cool. So, so that's good. So you want to yeah. keep doing it. That means that's one measure of success. Yes. That you're not like giving up. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We're, we haven't given up and we haven't said no more. You know, we haven't stopped and said we're not doing it anymore. Uh, and uh, we, so we are actively looking for more. Nice. So, uh, okay, two years ago and then a year ago and then six months ago. So like, uh, and you want to do more. How, how, how many more firms do you want to do? How often are you going to do it? Like, yeah, that's your a, goal? That's a great question. And that's always hard to, it's always hard to measure how many we'll be able to get to be able to do. And really there's a mix of hitting our revenue goals in, in, in um, our acquisition plan, but also that then makes up, well, how many firms make up that revenue goal? So the past three firms we've focused on have primarily been between 800000 to $1.5 million in range, in revenue range. And so those three, you know, combine roughly, roughly make up between two and a half and three million a year in revenue. And, but now we're looking at firms where we can buy one firm that does that much revenue. So instead of doing three, we can do one. Got it. You know, one now. So. So, so targeting firms doing ideally two to three million dollars a year in revenue. That's who we're actively talking to now. We're going as low as a million now. We were going lower than that. Now we've kind of focused on a million in size. And then ideally somewhere around two million to three million. That's where we've been focused. And so how are you, like, how did you get started doing this? Like, where do you find these opportunities? That's a, that's a great question. That's a really great. Do you just talk to people? You go out and like yeah. knock on doors and <laughs> yeah. like say, hey, you want to sell your firm? The good old door-to-door -door sales, you know, Kirby vacuum way. Yeah. No, Do you um, put up a billboard that says I buy ugly accounting firms.com? <laughs> right, exactly. Or that's like... a, exactly. That's, that's hilarious. Uh, no, I, I was here at the beginning. I was actually here visiting my family at the beginning of the pandemic, my parents and my siblings. And before the pandemic hit, I was here. And it was, you know, we were, it was early 2020 and we already had gotten through four years of the business. And I sat there going, okay, we've really built something I think is a very attractive business. Uh, the firm was growing at a very, very fast clip compared to our competitors, compared to other accounting firms. And the, one of the things that stops most firms from growing is that most accounting firm owners have a very difficult time growing past the number of people they feel comfortable managing in their firms. So if you look at the landscape accounting firms out there, it's like a half yeah. a dozen to a dozen. Yeah. Half a dozen to a dozen. Actually, it's actually even smaller. Okay. The average that like the most, most firms in the country are anywhere from two to three people. You know, if you, if you count a solo owner with two or three staff as a firm, yeah. then that's literally the majority of firms across the country. So doing no more than 250 to 500,000 a year in revenue. And they don't go, go past that because they get uncomfortable managing the people and right. finding the talent. And especially if they're in geographies where they can't get them local into the same office and they haven't gone the remote work or hybrid route, then it becomes difficult. So that's one piece. Second is most accountants have a difficult time actively selling to scale and then creating a, a systemized process to bring those customers in and then at the same time finding the talent to serve them. So we had done that at Reconciled by by early 2020, we had a pretty solid base of customers, a solid process. And so I actually began, began writing a, I guess you call it a thesis or a guidebook on how would Reconciled go about inviting firm owners 
to sell their practice to us. And I spent the basically the first part of the pandemic putting that together in early to mid 2020. And then and you, you hadn't done any acquisitions yet. You yeah, were just planning it out. Yeah, I was just planning it out. I hadn't done any. And I, um, I, I talked to some, some people for advice. Like I talked to some bankers that specialized in accounting firm financing. I talked to some brokers that represented firms either for sale or would represent them as, as, as buying brokers. And then in the first few years of Reconciled, I had actually been courted by multiple firms and, and investment groups to be, to be sold to them or to have an investment brought in. And so I kind of was familiar with a little bit of the, of the process, but getting that advice was super helpful. And then I also partnered with a, a buying broker that um, I, I went out and scouted and recruited that would represent us on all of our deals and would help us with the, basically this, the re, uh, searching process of finding the right firms that would fit, fit, our, fit our needs. So made a plan, went out, found a broker. Yes. And because I've heard mixed reviews about using brokers. Yes. So it was a positive experience for you. Is yes. It, is I, that how you found your first deal? I, I think um, that, is how, that is how I found a first deal. And I think that most f- accounting firms have an experience with the broker representing them for sale. And my, my approach was a little unique in that I wanted to find a dedicated broker to represent us for purchase. And they, he would be the dedicated person doing that. So I found a gentleman that actually had represented a, a larger accounting player in the industry. And I knew that he had experience doing this for that firm. And so when I heard that he was available to hire, I went out and talked to him and, and hired him to represent us. Okay, so then he goes out and he has like a list of firms that he knows. Yes. And he's, he says, okay, these, I mean, it's, it's got to be a lot like real estate. Yes. I imagine, right? Yeah. Like they have their list of people they know that are selling or are interested in doing so. And then they, they look at your criteria and try to fit you into that. Exactly, exactly. It, it's, it's very similar to real estate commercial or residential real estate brokering. There's great real estate agents. There's bad real estate agents. You know, there's ones better than others. And there's ones that know what they're doing, especially if they've done multiple deals at a time. And so this, this person that represents us, he had done multiple deals um, in the space. He had come from a corporate development background. So he was very, very helpful in advising us in the whole process and also helping us get the firms we were talking to comfortable with selling to us as well. Because we were, we were clearly new to doing this. I had never, it's not like you take a class on this at college or you learn about it in an accounting program. Yeah. Uh, this was, there's, and there's really no book or handbook or guidebook you can just go pick up. You literally learn, everyone that I know that's done this in, in accounting or not, learns by doing it and by making mistakes and having failures in the whole process. So you would recommend using a broker? I would recommend doing it, especially if your plan is to uh, do multiple and your plan is to do multiple deals going forward. Of course, you could take the time, just like buying a home, you can always represent yourself, but this is a, this is a risky endeavor that you're undertaking. Do you really want to wade through the unknown on your first deal with having no representation or having no one on your side? You can even have your attorney or an attorney represent you, but most attorneys have never done an M&A, uh, an M&A transaction. So they neither have represented nor sold a business before, let alone an accounting business. And that's really where 
having a broker that understands, not just a regular any generic broker, a broker that understands the space specifically is super helpful. Okay. So you have your criteria, you mentioned revenue, headcount, yep. any other criteria for going out and finding a firm that's going to be a good fit? Yeah, for us, uh, we wanted to find a firm specifically where the name of the firm wasn't the name of the owner. Because that told us a little bit about how they sold to the marketplace and how their customers saw their relationship with the firm. Yeah. It's a signal to us. And then, and then other, the other is that the seller is ready to retire or be done. And we usually have the seller, the owner involved in a six month to one year transition process. But other than that, our intention is, is not, we're not planning to buy partners. If, you'll, if you see how other accounting firms generally buy accounting firms, they're buying partners. They're bringing those, they're, they're buying that practice, bringing on the owner as a partner. Right. And oftentimes that partner might be running uh, the office in a, in a major city that that firm's not in yet. So a big firm buys an, uh, a firm in Phoenix with a, a big presence. They have the partner or partners be the managing partners of the Phoenix office. Or, or the same thing with New York City or whatever. That's not the approach we took. We wanted, we wanted the firm owners to not, not, no longer be involved and have to be, they're, they're ready to sell and not be involved. And they're moving on to retirement or moving on to something else. So are these firms CPA firms? Are they accounting firms? Like, are they non-CPAs? Is it a mix? It's really, it's a, it's a mix. Um, the first firm we purchased was owned by a CPA, but they ran it like a local bookkeeping firm and they had a separate tax practice, a, a literal separate tax practice, and we ended up buying both, both practices. Um, but the tax practice was much smaller than the, than the bookkeeping firm. And almost all the work, or pretty much all the work was being done by the staff. The owner really was not involved on either side uh, of the practice. He was just a salesperson. And uh, So is the, is, the, is the acquisition for you to acquire clients or to acquire staff? It's, it's actually both. It's actually both, yeah. It's to acquire the clients that are that generally have been loyal to this firm. And if if you look at most accounting firms, no matter what type of flavor they are, it, most of them have been around 15, 20 years that are ready for sale. The owner's ready to retire. And they generally have had clients for a very long time, you know, five, 10, 15 years. They've they've had relationships with these clients. So those clients are sticky clients. And if the owner is planning to retire and exit out of accounting or exit out of the workforce generally, then that client has to go somewhere. And because the staff is the same staff that we're bringing on, we're acquiring, that staff ends up working with those same clients anyways. So it seems like it becomes a seamless transition. Um, the other thing that we do in, then is we begin a migration to a more updated tech stack. So most of the firms that we end up talking to, most of them are still on Outlook using Microsoft Outlook and a internal network server-based IT system um, that's literally housed at the accounting firm's office. And most of them are at best on QuickBooks desktop or QuickBooks Enterprise hosted. We want to do a conversion to QuickBooks Online yeah. or to Zero or some cloud-based product as fast as possible. So we take that six months to a year post-acquisition timeline to do that transition. And that's what the owner helps us do is that transition. And that's part of their both compensation in that first year. And then it's that, that transition is tied to the performance of, of how they're paid out at the end of the year. So Michael, how do you finance these deals? There's multiple ways to finance deals, just like there's multiple ways you know, to buy a house. There is a whole industry that 
is focused on financing small business acquisitions. There's the most banks that are backed by the SBA have loans. They call them SBA 7A loans. And most firm owners end up going through an SBA 7A process to buy a firm or buy a practice. You can do that process whether you own a firm already or if, if you literally are an accountant practicing in private or public accounting, you can go to your local bank and say, hey, I'd like to buy a firm. And generally, most of them can give you a pre, pre-qualification. You know, they'll, mm-hmm. you, you apply and say, generally, this is the firm size I want to buy. This is the type of firm I'm going to look for. What can I qualify for it? They, they'll tell you in that process, just like you pre-qualify for a home, a home mortgage. So how easy is it to get, you said these are SBA loans? These are SBA loans. How they easy make is it, it? They make it rather easy because it's, it's a part of encouraging entrepreneurship and small business creation. Yeah. And in general, they know when a business, a, a business switching hands is better than that business shutting down. Business shutting down means jobs are lost, the community's impacted, revenues lost, tax revenues lost in a community. So the SBA 7A loans, step in to help a bank basically take a bet that they necessarily wouldn't take on their own. Most banks, or you know, majority of small business acquisitions are done through SBA 7A. If you're including a building or a commercial property or physical building in the process, then there's other SBA products that get involved. But all of this goes through your local bank. So you basically find a small business bank that does SBA lending. And there are banks that specialize just in accounting firms. Um, as well. So you have that, that route, and that's the route I've generally gone towards um, when I can, because it's the cheapest route. Is there a limit on how much money you can get for that? Like, is there a minimum? Like, what can I, I'm thinking, hey, you know, maybe I want to go buy a firm, right? Like, there you go. Can, I, can I just go in and say, hey, I'm a CPA, I, I want to go buy a firm? Yes. Yeah, you can do that. And, and there's a variety of ways in which you can match, you can get matched to the banks as well. When you go to a broker who's representing a firm for sale, generally most of those brokers actually have a relationship with a bank that is willing to finance the deals they're selling. Okay. So you actually can go and talk to the bank that they have queued up and that because that bank is involved with that broker, generally that bank's able to move very fast. It's kind of like a real estate agent recommending a mortgage company right, to right. work with you, right? They can move very fast because they trust the broker, they trust the quality of the firm. So that's that's one route you can go. And and the max you can borrow is up to five million dollars on a single borrower. Yeah, that's pretty good. Right? So me as, you know, me as the firm owner, me alone can only borrow up to 5 million and I can do that through in multiple firms. Right? So I could do that with, you know, two firms equaling 5 million, three firms equaling 5 million, but not I can't go past 5 million. That's the max ceiling for borrowing. And I would have to pay that down before I could borrow some more. If you want to go past that or you find a bank and that that thinks that they can just fund you directly through a conventional loan, you can also do a commercial conventional loan that's outside of the SBA. Generally, you need to put more money down when you do that process. Oh yeah, how yeah. much do you put down for the SBA loan? It, SBA loan, it really depends. There's some banks that are able to do it up to 100% with no money down because if you own a firm, they actually count the equity having your own firm as the down payment towards the new firm you want to buy. And then they're able to finance a 90, up to 90%, sometimes you know 90%, 100% of the rest. Wow. So. Uh, it can be it can be very easy to do this. Well, yeah. So put it into like real terms for me. So you did this with one of the firms. Yep. Yeah. Uh, what was the price and what did you have to put down? Yeah. So you know, uh, for a firm that's roughly 1.3, 1.4 million dollars, you can you can do a 10% down on for 130,000 dollars. So and there's a lot of banks willing to do that. 
and you know, and then you would finance the remainder of that on SBA loan. So you know, one point whatever the remainder of one point three, so, so one point one million left. I put yeah. down one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. And then I finance the rest and I can buy a $1.3 million firm. firm. Yeah, and generally it's gonna be on a seven to 10 year loan at SBA rates, very single digit interest rates. It's the, one, some of the cheapest money you can get from, from business acquisition purposes. And yeah. So when you say $1.3 million firm, like how is that valued? Like what, is it revenue? Is it, like, that's typically it for an accounting firm, right? It's like yeah, most annual firms, revenue. In general, most firms are, are valued based on revenue. And they are, there's a, a mix of, you know, revenue, their growth rate, which for most firms is very small. They're growing at 5%, 10% a year at most. And they've been around for a while. It's, so it's a lifestyle firm for the firm owner. Mm-hmm. And then the quality of the clients, uh, if there's any revenue concentration. And then you can structure the deal, um, the, the payout of do you want to, do you want to, have the payout to the owner be over a period of time? Do you want them to get it all up front? Do you want the seller to actually carry a note so that you know maybe you can't maybe you find a bank but you can't finance the whole thing or you can't finance you don't have enough for the down payment. You ask the seller to finance five ten percent of it on a seller's note. Yeah, that happens all all the time and it's, it actually happens quite often. And so then the seller has to basically trust that you will be successful and help you be successful in the transition. And then- so that, yeah. so That's amazing. So yeah. let's say I get a 90% SBA loan. Yeah. I could go to the seller and say, look, I can't, I don't personally can't finance 10%. Right. Will you do a note for 10? Right. And I'll pay you over time. Right. Uh, well, that's like, that's like a zero down. Yes. And this happens all the time. And not just in accounting, not just buying accounting firms, but buying any type of business. Right. Sellers notes are involved in many, many, many transactions because it may be the only way a seller gets even a portion of their cash yeah. up front. Otherwise, what other options do they have, right? And most, most individuals don't have the liquid cash just sitting in their bank to do a, a transaction like this, let alone the down payment, yeah. right? No. So yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's exciting. So, and how, so how are you valuing firms? Like if, if I have 1.3 million in revenue, you're valuing my firm at 1.3 or is it less that, or more? Yeah, that range could be anywhere from 80% of that value to 1.2% of that value. It really depends on the EBITDA size as well. Yeah. Uh, the firms that we've spoken to, and these are between the firms that we've seen financials that we didn't end up purchasing and firms we ended up purchasing, the EBITDAs can re- end up ranging from 20% to 40% for the best performing firms. So that EBITDA range will also dictate um, how, how, how high we want to value that firm. Yeah. So EBITDA 40%, that's pretty darn great. Oh, you'd, yeah. You'd be probably happy to give them one point. Over right. one, over one times. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And because you're generally, you're still, you're still ending up in a two to three times EBITDA range. Yeah. Um, so regardless of the revenue valuation, if you're ending up there, then your payback period on that firm is just a few years, right? And your goal is to own those customers and keep servicing them anyways. Um, and you're using debt to do so. And you're not using your own cash anyways. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. I, when you do the IRR calculation, it actually comes out really. Really good. Well, it just seems crazy to think that there are firms out there that are closing their doors yeah. that don't have a buyer. Like, yeah. like the financing is there. The government-backed financing is there. It just, you have to be willing to take what seems actually like a pretty small risk. If you can yeah. get it all financed, right? If, you have no, if you're not putting any of your own money down, and then I'm sure there's probably, you know, 
provisions in there to protect you in case the clients leave. Right. Right. And non-competes right. and all that stuff. Right. So like, cause that's your big risk is you do the acquisition and then like half the clients are out the door. Yeah. There's really, there's really three primary risks. You do the acquisition, clients walk away, staff walk away. Yeah. Cause that's a risk or the seller does not act in good faith. Right. So you have, you then have to have recourse if something happens and the seller decides I'm going to go ahead and keep doing accounting even in some other way, I'm going to still be present in my community and still sell in accounting. Obviously, that would be violating your agreements, but th that does happen, right? That does happen. Has, that, so, has any of that happened to you? No, fortunately, no. The, the sellers we've, we've worked with have all been above board. They've always abided by their agreements, and so they've been p people of character. These are all things that you want to have due diligence in and yeah, research. Yeah. Now, the, the, the reason why, and you spoke, you've actually spoken about this on your podcast, is that there's some industry challenges going on that prevent sellers from selling. One is there is a record number of firms either ready for sale or getting ready to sell because of the number of CPAs retiring. Right. So the number of firms coming on the market and that you're going to continue to see every year only is increasing. Uh, secondly, the firms that are actually attractive to buy, even though there's a lot of firms, they might not be attractive to buy. For example, that firm might be in a really, really small town where there isn't a buyer that wants to either take over the lease of the firm, that the, of the building that the firm's in, or maybe the clients in the area aren't attractive to them to, to acquire, right? So there's a number of variables like that. Third, the staff you, they have might also be retiring or nearing retirement age. Does a buyer want to buy a firm that has great customers, but, but the owner and almost all the staff is nearing retirement age. So there, yeah. there's, there's multiple challenges going on, and that's why vetting every single firm you talk to is important. I would definitely want to know all those things, right? Yeah, the, the staff, you know, what's their tenure, how long have yep. they been around, the clients, right? If, if it's a bunch of clients who are, you know, boomers, then how long are they going to be clients? You know, maybe not that long. So you look into all of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, you know, also if you're attracted to, let's say you want to buy a tax-only firm, well, you've just removed the, a lot of the market because most accounting firms have a mix of services. Yeah. Or if you want to buy a firm with zero um, audit and assurance, right? Which is what we look look at. We I don't have a CPA. I don't have an audit or assurance background. I didn't want to have to buy a practice that had any of that. Um, and I don't have a business partner that has a CPA. So that removes a set of firms that are out there and even sizable ones that might have you know a quarter of their revenue in audits. Or if you want to buy a bookkeeping only firm or an advisory only firm and you don't want tax or audit, that also removes a population of firms to buy. So that is also a variable you want to look into. We've, we've been focused primarily on majority bookkeeping or majority bookkeeping advisory firms with some tax. And we, we realize that almost all the firms we want to purchase are going to have some level of tax involved, especially if it's owned by a CPA. And but so you prefer the ongoing bookkeeping. We prefer the ongoing bookkeeping advisory, and we would we would much rather do larger deals with bookkeeping only firms versus having a firm that has any level of tax revenue. But we we go ahead and make an exception when it's the minority of the revenue. Yeah. So you're moving up to the two to three million dollar for uh, a year firms, bigger like how many staff that would be? I mean, you're probably over. How many staff would that be? Yeah, roughly fifteen to thirty. 15, the general rule of thumb is, you know, for every staff member, they're probably managing $100,000 $150,000 of revenue a year. And, you know, the best, best, best firms out there are probably doing two hundred dollars to two hundred fifty dollars a year. But those are for super highly paid CPAs. 
generally a firm has, you know, a few seniors, a few entry-level CPAs, maybe one manager, one, one partner. So their, their average is around 100, 150,000 in, in uh, revenue per staff. Per staff. Per, per headcount, yeah. So how do, you, uh, how do you do that? Like, do you have a team that, at Reconciled now that just helps to onboard all these staff and these clients? I mean, you said you're changing the tech stacks. Yeah. That's a lot of work. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of work involved. So if you look at the cycle of what happens you know, pre, then close and post acquisition. Uh, most of the time spent pre acquisition is negotiation with the seller and due diligence, as well as your financing due diligence. Cause it's just like buying a home. You have to provide documents to the financing company and you need the seller's involvement and participation in that. The seller is going to be aware that you're getting financing and through and, and who it's through. And the seller is going to have to give permission that their firm is sold you're gonna to have to decide on the type of structure, whether you do an equity purchase or an asset purchase. Generally, they're done as an asset purchase. And well, let's talk yeah. about the difference between that, because that's yeah. important, right? So equity purchases, I'm buying the actual entity. Correct, right. And asset purchases, I'm just buying the customers, the staff, like all- The staff, the brand, the, the naming rights, yeah. right? And basically, the, you're, you're buying the ability to practice as that practice without buying the historical, the, the stock and the historical ownership of all the liabilities. That's the right? thing you want to avoid, Correct. is buying all the potential lawsuits. Correct. Right, because if you buy the equity, it's as if you're stepping in, you're just switching places of the owner. Yeah. So you're also carrying all the historical liabilities, including liabilities around tax returns they filed, liabilities around books they've done, clients they've advised, and generally you want to do an asset purchase and then you also require the firm owner to carry an insurance policy to protect the the seller, the firm owner um, from from any historical claims against them, right? If they don't have that, then you risk that customer, that client coming to you and saying, "Well, I can't I can't get anything from the seller. I'm going to come after you as the buyer." So you have them carry a, a tail, they call it tail insurance okay. that, that yeah. protects, you know, that does a look back of, of insurance. That's all part of the, the deal process. And how long do you have the owners stick around? You said anywhere from six months to a year okay. um, is, is, is the length of time we try to aim for. That's probably nice for them because a lot of firms would want them to stay for years. Right, right. Right, in a, tra in a more traditional. In a more traditional, yeah, more traditional merger, they're, they're, they're serving in a partnership capacity they're maybe running in the office still. Yeah. And they're literally working really not much differently than they were before. They're just now getting an extra dividend or payout of the purchase price, right? Which they weren't before. They were just extracting dividends whenever they wanted to of their own firm. Now they're getting payments from the firm that bought them. And, and really they stick around for a handful of years generally or more and finish off the term, the, the term until they get to retirement. So you'll see a lot of firm owners do this that, that traditional practice around, you know, as early as 60 years old, maybe even 70 years old, they work for four or five more years, then they retire. With us, we try to actually get them out within a, a much shorter time frame. You have the staff you want to bring over, and then you have the owner. So the pre-purchase, pre it's really your interaction with the owner, getting to understand the firm, all the due diligence and the financing. Then as you get to close, it's getting all the ducks in a line so that when close happens, you can then begin to announce it. And for most purchases, you actually don't ever meet the staff until the day after you've signed and closed. So you hear about them from the seller, but the staff does not know generally yeah. that they're actually, they actually have a new employer or gonna, they're going to be offered new employment starting on a specific date, whatever the close date is. 
Okay, that leads me to a question. How do you avoid freaking out the staff? That's a great question. And I, I would say to you, you know, you've worked at accounting firms, and I've worked at accounting firms. Most accountants that I know and most accounting staff I know have a hard time with change. They like stability. They like predictability. So it really is a matter of about approach and, and how you present it and approach it. And also being in line on how the seller, the firm owner selling to you, is communicating to their staff that first week, right? So generally how we've done it is we do a virtual or, or even in-person meeting if, it's, if, if the staff are all local to one place. Me and our HR team will literally fly there and meet in person with the, with the team. We'll do a joint announcement with the seller of what's happened and introduce ourselves. And really the goal is to humanize what's happening instead of making it look robotic like a big corporation's coming in to, to, to buy this, that they can see who I am as the founder, as the leader, and shake my hand, sit down with me. And you, then we schedule one-on-one times with HR where they actually get their formal offer letter. Um, and also one-on-one times with me as the owner for them to ask any questions about the transition. And that transition is going to take, it's, it's going to take the, roughly the first 30 to 60 days just to get everyone situated in your new firm, yeah, just, just in like general. Get them on payroll, yes. get their benefits going, exactly. get their systems up and running. Exactly, yeah. So imagine the time of year you do this is pretty important. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. You, you, you want to try to avoid, obviously, during tax season. <laughs> That's, you know, we did do one in, in January, but that was not because we wanted to. It's because the financing got delayed by a couple months. So we were hoping, we had hoped to close November of last year, of 2021, yeah. and then it got delayed. So Did you have yeah. to, like, change all that stuff, or were you able to wait until after busy season? You, we wait till busy season. If you, if you buy a firm in the middle of tax season, my recommendation, and the, and the seller's, will push for no changes until the tax yeah. season's over. Yeah. And, and, and rightly so, the staff is just bombarded with, with things. And it's already an overwhelming feeling to, to go, wow, I have a new employer I wasn't prepared for, yeah. right? I wasn't told. And there's no guarantee they're gonna accept your offer either. Because you, you, you purchased the right to make them an offer. You can't force anybody to come work for you. And so it's, it's really important how you approach it. And then you go about the work now of introducing yourself to the customers. And that is what takes the much longer process. Oh, really? Right. Because you, you want the seller to then do an introduction to all the customers in a press release announcement, right? Yeah. But then for the high-valued customers that maybe they have the relationship with or understand are more, more afraid of change, you'd want them to have one-on-one conversations with them. So that could be 100 clients, 200 clients. It depends on how big that firm is. So we have the seller involved and that's what takes the most time is that transition, is the customer transition. So I want to go back to one thing we mentioned. I don't think we finished uh, talking about financing. Yeah. We talked a lot about the SBA financing, yeah. but there's other ways to do it. You said commercial. Was there another one? That... Oh, yes. Yes. So there's, uh, there's SBA financing commercial. There's also just obviously your own cash, right? So if you have a firm and you have enough equity in it and you've built either personal savings or business savings, you could use that to just buy a firm with cash and then pay and, out over and, time. Yeah, pay out over time or force or do a, a mix of cash and force have the seller do a seller's note. So that's what yeah. we did. So when I sold my bookkeeping firm, it was a uh, valuation multiple of annual revenue. Mm-hmm. And then I got paid out over, I think it was five years. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty typical. And it was just paid out of cash flow. Yep, that's pretty typical. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and if you find a seller amenable to that and... And because if you involve financing, um, like a bank, that can delay the process. Just like when you get a mortgage on a home, it could fall apart, right? The deal could get compromised. Can you do a deal and then go get financing? 
generally to go get the financing, they do want to see the asset purchase agreement signed. So you do have a deal where the letter of intent and then the asset purchase agreement are signed with a financing contingency, just like a home. And so the risk for the seller though is that- Financing falls financing through. Financing falls through. So if and how long, lose, how long yeah. do you have to get the financing from there? Well, it's, that's all outlined inside your, your what's, deal structure. What's standard? Generally in standard, you have 90 days. Okay, you know? that's I've pretty seen, generous. I've seen as fast as 60, right? And then I, I've seen as long as 120 days, right? Okay. So it really depends. And if, if the seller trusts you and thinks, hey, I don't want that to be the delay, I'm, I'm willing to do just a seller, seller financing agreement and, and let's close in 30 days, then a seller can move that faster just by, by removing the financing uh, situation. So what's the, what's the biggest mistake you have made so far in the three deals you've done? That's a great question. The biggest mistake was probably in our first deal is we went too fast on the transition of the employees to our systems. And we underestimated their abilities, to, their ability to move as quickly as we wanted to. And we didn't recognize the fact that not only are they getting a new employer, but they still have their regular ongoing accounting work. They still have clients that they're serving. Even though there are clients now, they got to do that job, which generally they're going to be in full capacity, right? A firm owner selling their firm doesn't just have employees sitting there not doing work. So they got to do that job and onboard to our systems and probably learn a new tech stack. So all that takes a lot of time. And we, we really tried to speed that process um, in the first 30 days. And it really should have been a much longer process. And now you're, it sounds like you're doing 90 days or... Right, right, or longer. I think that's what you said, yeah, or, or longer. longer depending yeah. on if we're in the middle of tax season. Um, so that was probably the, our biggest mistake is, is... I've heard that. You're not the only one I've heard that from. <laughs> I think it was Kenji and Matthew at Acuity. Yes. They tried to very quickly migrate systems with the, one of the firms they acquired, and uh, they lost staff as yep. a result. Yep. Because like you said, uh, there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, this is just the personality profile of us as accountants is you know, most of us tend to be conservative and we don't like change, right? right? And especially when it comes to technology. Right, and, and, and we're seeing now at the size we're at, even though I would still consider us fairly small at 55, you know, we're seen in the market to most firms as a mid-size firm on the lower end of a mid-size firm or the upper end of a small firm. And for, for the staff that are used to a firm where they talk to the owner every day or they see the owner every day or they get coffee once a week or do check-ins, to go to a firm where not all the staff has interactions with me on a regular basis, they don't have access to me. So it, to them, it feels like it's a big corporation for some of them. Yeah. And that change is what really can rattle people and also their stability and, and certainty around their job. And that's what we, I really underestimated people's ability to move, I thought could move much faster and not realizing that they had a, a full load of work already that they were handling. That's, that's the thing we gotta be sympathetic with is like the workloads in this profession are very high. <laughs> yes. Right, like not, I mean, it's not, it's not, I wouldn't say in a lot of firms it's unreasonable, but it's, there's no, there's no leeway. There's right. no, there's no, there's no slack. There's a slack. Right? That's there's the no word. slack. It's really hard to go. Oh yeah, today I'm just going to reduce everything by fifty percent and then do this new work that yeah, right. you're asking me to do, even if it's for thirty days. It's very difficult to find a week to yeah. do that. So, so that, that's, that's and shallow. that ends up coming out of personal time, which is where you get yes. then the the conflict. What's the smartest thing you've done? <laughs> just, what is, what's the thing uh, you're most proud of? Yeah, I think the thing I'm mo most proud of so far is. We were able to find our third deal. We were able to find a deal that was really a, a 
probably our best match so far because that firm was already all on a tech stack that aligned with ours. And we were able to get that person involved in, in the due diligence process a little more heavily. And she, this, this firm owner, um, was really incentivized to make the process work. And so I think just, you know, me going, going I'm actually met with her in person before the deal as part of due diligence. I flew to uh, where the firm was located. I spent time with her and the staff. I was able to actually meet the staff before the deal closed. So that, that and that really was a, a, a decision by the seller who said, I'd like you to meet the staff before we close. I went, oh, wow, this is, that was actually a huge help in the whole process. Yeah. That's not something that we can get every time, but it was definitely super helpful on the process. Yeah. I would definitely want to meet the staff. Like I want to know, I mean, these, these are the people that are crucial to the functioning of the firm, right? Yes. So it seems kind of strange to me that that wouldn't be standard, but I guess, the seller would be nervous about you stealing their staff? No, the, the risk for the seller is, is the, staff the staff know they're gonna sell. Yeah. The staff decides to do something beforehand, like, like sabotage or even just leave. Right, right, right. right. They, the, the, there, there's really dynamics within relationships between the firm owner and their staff, especially staff that have been a, there a while. Dynamics that you never, you, you, you never think about yeah. or that'll, that'll happen. We've, had, we've seen staff upset at firm owners for sell, their for, their owners for selling, we've seen staff. Um, we see that uh, with tech companies. Yeah, we see that with tech companies too. We've seen staff that don't understand what is actually happening, yeah. um, and maybe aren't aren't aware of how this this deal is a normal process in the industry. But also, it's a big risk for the seller because if you meet the staff and then decide you don't want to buy the firm, now you've just introduced you yourself to a staff, right? You know that knows about you now but and thought you were going to buy the firm and you got their hopes up right maybe especially for the staff that wanted the i like the idea of going to a big a, a different firm or a place with that was bigger no. you've just gotten their hopes up now you've just left that bad taste in their mouth for the seller and that that's all risk the seller carries so i can understand why most firm owners wouldn't want that right um, yeah yeah that makes, makes a lot of sense now yeah uh, we got to figure out a way to to yeah how do you hedge that risk and still get to meet them because yeah. that would be my biggest i mean like let's say i'm going to go out and buy a firm and now i've got you know a handful of staff am i going to really buy that firm and, and be working with these people every day that i've never met before right. that's like a that's a scary yeah. thing for me as a buyer it is i mean it, you're it is. you're big and you know you're big now you're a big shot michael you don't have to <laughs> you don't have to manage the staff yourself <laughs> right you've, you've got a team that does that but right that's where you have to fill out the the seller the firm owner that you're buying from and feel out what is the type of culture they probably built and that's really going to be representative of who are they as a person yeah. right that's generally most firms is it's representative of who they are so you got to get really comfortable with the seller and and trusting that okay is this the kind of person i would want to do business with that's a really good point right and so that's yeah. that's reality would you say that's the most important thing that is that is definitely in the top five i, I don't necessarily know if it's the most important. It depends on uh, what your goals are, right? If it's the only firm you're ever gonna buy, then you're gonna put a high priority on the integrity of that firm owner. Yeah. If your goal is to buy multiple firms and continue to grow it, well, there, there are other things that might be more important to you um, because in the long term, they're gonna, they're gonna make a bit better and bigger impact on how you go about this process. Yeah. Any final words of advice for those uh, would-be accounting firm acquirers out there, Michael? I, I would say get some help 
if you're about, if you're gonna do this, if anybody's gonna do this, get some help. Don't write your own legal yeah. agreements. Don't write your own legal agreements for sure. All right. D um, look at look at this as buying your first home or making your first investment property. You probably want some help. You want professional help, and that's where another CPA, attorney, um, and, and a broker can can be super helpful in the process. And. Uh, if anyone wants to reach out to you, Michael, and ask your advice, yeah, can they do that? Yes, of course. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. I'm, I'm happy to talk to anybody. All right, we'll put the links to Michael's profiles in the show notes, so check those out if you want to connect with him. And uh, follow Reconciled. It's really interesting. I mean, this is not a traditional accounting firm by any stretch of the imagination. It's really been awesome to be your friend, Michael, and follow your journey. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Blake. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. And if you did, wouldn't it be nice to get some CPE credit for it? Well, I've got great news. My new app, Earmark CPE, offers free NASPA-approved CPE credits for listening to podcasts, including this one. Visit EarmarkCPE.com to download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. That's EarmarkCPE.com.